and there's four topics. And I had a first grader come to me last week and said, Mark, we're learning earn, save, and he couldn't think of the other two, which are spend and give, okay? And we're running parallel to what Rob is teaching uh, so those who have children can talk to them about what they learn, learned this morning. See, when your kids are young, that's the time to educate them about money. And when they're young is the time to give them the right perspective and respect for it and God's intention for it. I want to begin with a quiz, true or false. The act of handling money tends to make young children work harder but be less generous even when they don't fully, really understand the value of money, true or false. That is true. The act of handling money tends to make young children work harder but be less generous, even if they don't understand it. And that's based on five experiments on a study with hundreds of children. Researchers found that ages three to six children tend to focus on tasks better but are less generous and less helpful while they handle money. So it's a double-edged sword. It produces good outcomes in terms of concentration and effort, but bad outcomes when it comes to helping and donating, they become more selfish. So we need to teach them very carefully so they'll have the proper view. And for you adults, we are asking you to do one thing during this series, and that is simply to pray. Okay, just pray. Ask God what He wants you to do. Uh, How does He want me to spend? God, how do you want me to give? How do you want me to earn, save? And if you do this and are really seeking His will, honestly do it, you will be a better manager of His resources. You'll feel better about yourself. Ellen and I are praying about this, and we're evaluating in these four different areas for our lives, and I hope you'll do that too. Today, money, is it a tool or a drug? Now, with kids, it's a double-edged sword. But in the Bible, it is also a double-edged sword. It can be used as a tool for good things or it can become an addiction. It is a tool and a drug. And for a long time, economists thought of it only as a tool. We valued it because of its usefulness and it lets us, you know, pay bills and keep the lights on, things like that. It is a good tool and it can be a blessing. The tool theory, however, leaves some odd questions unanswered like this. If it's only a tool, then why is it the people who are already rolling in money want to have more? Why will a person with more than enough make sacrifices that may damage friendships, family life, even their emotional health, just to get more? Why is enough never enough if it's only a tool? I have three garden rakes, and that is enough. In fact, that's more than I want. And if you want one, you can see me afterwards, I'll give it to you. And I don't have any deep emotional attachment to any of them. They're just tools. And money is a tool and useful, but it's more. And people get a deep emotional attachment to it. That's why when preachers address it, people uh, get nervous. Just using the word money makes people cringe. In fact, I believe now it is easier to say the word sex from the pulpit than money. It's more offensive. It's more than a tool. It's also a drug. It makes us feel things we would not otherwise feel. It gives a temporary escape from pain or momentary illusion of well-being. Some people get hooked on shopping because it just feels so good. They get addicted to spending. Some are addicted to saving. Even earning can become a high, you know, workaholics. You can be addicted in a number of ways. When it's payday in the office, I know here at the church, it's kind of a good day. But if Ellen gives me a rake or a hammer or a hoe, I don't get excited about that. They're just tools. The biblical writers knew this. The Bible is really smart. It's smarter than any of us. That's why we need to read it. The Apostle Paul wrote 1 Timothy, people who want to get rich, how many of you want to get rich? I, I wouldn't mind. Actually, here's the warning. 
People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Many people want to get rich. And I'm not sure that's all evil, but there is a danger. And I'm going to replace one word in that verse, the word rich with the word high. People who want to get high fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Isn't that true? People who want to get high on alcohols, drugs, porn, or meth, whatever, they fall into temptation and trap in many foolish, harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. It's true. And none of us want our kids addicted to alcohol or drugs or pornography or whatever, nor should we want them addicted to money. It is harmful as well. It's a tool and it is a drug. Or in biblical language, money is a servant, good to be used, but it can be an idol that is worshipped. Do not let it become a drug. So God has given us a surefire way to help us in this tool category, and that is the ability to give. Rob and the children are learning this today. Giving is a way to show thankfulness towards God and grow His kingdom on earth. Now, they're not going to talk about the tool or the drug aspect, but they are talking about giving. And we're going to look at the Old Testament today and look at some vehicles to free us from money as a drug and to keep it in the tool category. The first one is tithing or a tenth. I used to think that everyone in the church knew what tithing meant. But after listening, I don't think so. I mean, tithe is a word that in the Hebrew and Greek both means a tenth. And I know this is elementary for some of you, but sometimes I will hear people say, well, I tithe $10 today, this week. Well, for the mathematically challenged among us, that means you only made $100 this week if you tithe $10. Tithing is a major concept in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, and it means a tenth. In the Old Testament, it was really just one part of a very rich, fascinating, sometimes confusing way of life. And by the way, I am getting a lot of this message from a preacher by the name of John Ortberg. I think he puts this all together very well, and so I need to give credit Uh, where credit is due. But why does God require tithing? I think two reasons primarily. First of all, to show God's first in my life. God, I'm going to give you the first tenth because you are my God. Second reason is the tithe was designed to produce a community of generosity. And one of the visions for this church is we are a generous people. And by our giving, we serve a generous God. And I'm going to call a congregational meeting right now and we're going to have a congregational vote. How many of you want this to be a God-honoring, God-loving, generous church? Raise your hand. That's most of us. Now, let me ask you this. You don't have to raise your hand on this one. How many of you want to be a God-honoring, generous believer and want your family to be a God-honoring, God-loving, generous family? I do. And that's what tithing is all about, creating a generous people who love God and to keep money in the tool category and get it out of the drug category. Israel did not have just one tithe. They actually had three different tithes. And the first one in the book of Numbers, God says, I give to the Levites all the tithes in Israel as their inheritance in return for the work they do while serving at the tent of meeting. Now, when Israel went into the promised land, all the tribes of Israel inherited certain parts of the land. And every tribe got something except the tribe of Levi. And the Levites were kind of like the preachers today. They didn't get land. They got the tithes off of the land. 
And they would be like the youth ministers and worship leaders and children ministers today. The Levites served in the tabernacle in the temple. They did the sacrifices. And the rest of the Israelites were to tithe to God, and that would support the Levites in their, to make worship possible. And in the same way, we tithe to you know, pay our staff and to pay our missionaries to make the work of God possible. And then there's a second tithe in the book of Deuteronomy. It says, set aside a tenth of all that your fields produce each year. Eat the tithe of your grain, new wine and oil, and the firstborn of your herds and flocks in the presence of the Lord your God at the place he will choose as a dwelling for his name, so that you may learn to revere the Lord your God always. Now, this tithe was to be eaten. There was the crops, and eaten in an act of worship and celebration in the presence of God. This second tithe would teach people to celebrate God's goodness. Going on, you'd say, You could then exchange your tithe for silver and take the silver with you and go to the place the Lord your God will choose. Use the silver to buy whatever you like, cattle, sheep, wine, or other fermented drink, or anything you wish. Then you and your household shall eat there in the presence of the Lord your God and rejoice. Now, this is interesting. I never heard this preached in church when I grew up. Exchange your tithes for silver, you know, turn it into money, so you can buy stuff to have a party including fermented drinks. My mom never told me about this one. So this tithe was to celebrate in the presence of the Lord, eat, drink, and be merry. It's a celebration of God's goodness, kind of like graduation parties. We celebrate, you know, a turning point in young people's lives, and we eat. And I know what some of you are thinking before we go any farther. I know some of you. You're thinking, so if I buy a Budweiser, does that count as tithing? (laughs) No. Here's what God is doing. He wants to connect giving and generosity with celebration and joy. So one tithe was the party in the presence of God. Paul later on says in the New Testament, each of you should give what you've decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful, a joyful giver. And to connect giving with joy in the Old Testament, it connects giving with eating. I love to eat. Seven days of the week, I eat, and I enjoy it. Most of you do too. I have seen you. And it was important to God that people eat with joy and celebrate God's goodness. Now, there's one preacher I read about. He has an interesting application. He says, six days a week, I eat carefully. But on Sunday, I eat for joy. And it's his way of celebrating God's goodness. Sunday morning, he puts on a gallon of peanut butter and honey on a bagel He'll eat a pastry. For lunch, he goes to the Cheesecake Factory and have a cheeseburger and fries. He'll eat bread and butter and chocolate chip cheesecake and chocolate ice cream with extra hot fudge. And he has pizza at night. He says, Sunday I worship, Sunday I give, Sunday I serve, and Sunday I eat. And Sunday's my favorite day of the week. It's a day of celebration. I'm not suggesting you do that, but you need to find a way to connect giving and joy. How can you make it a celebration? Some of the most exciting and exhilarating times in the churches I've been in all these years and all my life is when the people of God opened up and sacrificed and just gave for a good cause, and we felt good about it. We were doing something useful with what God had blessed us. If talking about tithing makes you nervous or uneasy, I just hope you'll get over it and see it as a joy and a privilege. It's a reminder of how blessed we are. Uh, One thing that was a lot of fun here a couple months ago we had the dessert auction for the Haiti trip. Many of you are here for that. And that was one way of combining giving and joy and actually eating. Uh, people would pay big prices for a piece of, piece of pie. And some would say, well, that's silly. No, it's just a kind of a fun, joyful way of connecting giving and joy. 
When you see young people going to Haiti, there's just joy in that. It puts money more in the tool category. It's useful. When you give to church that's reaching people and making a difference, there's joy in that. When you support a missionary that's having impact around the world, just wow. Maybe you need to walk around the church some Sunday morning and look at children being taught to love Jesus, come to VBS and see kids learning about the Bible, talk to people who'll be going to Haiti, and especially after they get back, and you'll say, boy, I'm glad I gave. Come to youth meetings and see teenagers and their enthusiasm learning about Jesus. Talk to one of their mission, our missionaries about the work they're doing, you know, John and Jenny Gaynor, when they're here in a few weeks. And you see lives being changed, and the gospel is spreading. You think, man, I rejoice that I can give. My giving's making eternal difference. Then there's a ter- third tithe called the poor tithe, and it was collected once every three years, so that the foreigners or immigrants, the fatherless, the widows who live in your towns may come and eat and be satisfied, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the works of your hands. So two tithes every year, and then a third tithe every third year, 20% one year, 30% the next. Two questions often come up when it comes to tithing. Should my tithe go to the church or for other nonprofits? nonprofits. And there is no formula for this, but the first tithe in the Old Testament went to support local worship. Ellen, in my practice, and I think most people do this, has always been to give the first 10% to whatever church you're part of, and then give, when you give above that, it goes to the building fund or other missions or things like that. Another question that comes up is, should I tithe on the net or the gross? And a very simple answer to that is, do you want God to bless you on the, on the net or the gross? You know, and an awfully lot of us are like the Israelites. We could give more than 10%. We really could if we wanted to. 10% is a baseline. It's a floor and not a ceiling. And some of you are at a point in your life where Ellen, and, like Ellen and me, we don't have as many expenses. You know, kids are raised. And all. So 10% is too small for some. But for others, I know 10% is a real stretch. And if you're a new follower of Jesus and you're not, you know, in the practice of tithing and maybe your finances are even in a mess, you just have to take time. Be wise, learn and grow. That's why we're talking about saving and spending as well as earning and giving. We want us to be prudent in all aspects of money. Don't let it be a drug. Make it a tool. Don't let it be your master. Let it be your servant. So pray. Ask God, God, what do you want me to do in spending and in giving and in earning and saving? And that will make money into a tool and a servant. Another form of generosity, and I won't spend near as much time on these last four. First fruits. Israel was agrarian, and if the ground did not produce crops, they would struggle. So when they saw the earliest plants of the fruit or the crop appearing, they were filled with gratitude. It meant a whole crop was going to follow. And when that first crop came up, it meant future blessing was coming. So in Israel, the farmers would tie a reed to the best, healthiest first plants and say, I'm going to give that to God. God gave it to me, and it's a promise of more to come, and I'm going to give the first fruits back to him. God said in Exodus 34, bring the best of the first fruits of your soil to the house of the Lord your God. And I'm not an expert on this Old Testament stuff, but I've read that the celebration of first fruits brought so much joy that people would have parades to bring them to the temple, and the Old Testament hints at that, say, you know, we're going to have a crop, hallelujah, and they would put a, a, a crown of olive leaves on the oxen's head, and somebody would play a flute to lead the way as they gave. Deuteronomy 26 says, place the basket before the Lord your God and bow down before him. Then you and the Levites and the foreigners residing among you shall rejoice in all the good things the Lord your God has given you and your household. In other words, thank you, God, we're going to get a crop. 
first fruits concept is also in the New Testament in a little bit of a surprising way. It says, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. When Jesus came to life, it meant a whole crop of humanity was going to follow. Jesus is God's first fruit. And it is a promise that someday we will be raised as well. Paul in 1 Corinthians 16 gives a practical way, I believe, for doing first fruits offering. Now about the collection for the Lord's people, do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income. The most practical, I think the best way to do is the first check of the week or the first, uh, the, uh, first check of the month, the first 10% goes to God. And he says, each one of you, everyone. Now, Ellen and I still pay bills the old-fashioned way. We write checks and we mail it off and all that. Some of you don't even know what checks are, I don't think. But here's an idea. If you're a check writer like us, every time you write out that check to God's work, pause and just thank God for the resources you have. Or pause and thank Him when you're putting it in the offering plate. Maybe you do automatic withdrawal. I know some of you do that. Every few weeks when you review where you're financially and you see that tithe transaction, just stop and and just thank God and tell Him you want Him to be first in your life. Make it an act of worship, not just a duty. It's a joy. The opposite way of handling money would be called last fruits. And a lot of people do this. Well, when I get my paycheck, I'll pay for my bills, I pay for my obligation, I'll do some saving, I'll do a little spending on myself, I've got to put away for vacation, and then I'll wait to the end of the month and see how much money I have left over. And I'll give that, I'll give the leftovers. And how much is that? Not much. Israel said, we're not going to give God leftovers. We're going to give Him the first fruits. But what about harvest? Harvest would come along, and that's payday. For uh, an agrarian culture. So God filled the harvest with reminders again to be generous. And this is a third way of generosity. God said, When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am the Lord your God. All along the borders of your field or vineyard, you'd leave some crop behind for the poor. So both at the spring growing and then at harvest, There were reminders both times to be generous, first fruit in the spring and then harvest generosity in the fall. And you might remember there was one time on the Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields and the disciples were walking along. They started picking some grain. We'd call that stealing today. But they didn't get in trouble for stealing because in that day the farmer would leave some grain so poor people could have it. That tells you about the financial status of Jesus. Harvest generosity means you don't take everything for yourself. You leave some behind for others. And God says you do this so that the Lord your God may bless you. Sometimes I think people have lots of problems in their lives because they just refuse to be faithful in this area. God wants us to be generous and He wants to bless us. Every once in a while, here's some other application. I'm just thinking about this. Instead of leaving a 20% tip at the restaurant, leave 100%. Just once in a while. Especially if you know it's someone that could really use it. And it's just fun. Every once in a while when you see someone on the street corner, they got this uh, cardboard sign, you know, out of work, need help, and stuff like that. Give to them. I know, I know it's probably a fraud. I know it. But you give because you need to give. 
You need to cultivate this habit of generosity in all facets of your life. Every once in a while, when you get a letter from World Vision or Lincoln Christian University, send them a check. Every once in a while, when some money comes your way and you weren't expecting it, just pass it along to somebody else. That's harvest generosity. There's a fourth way, offerings. Uh, There's some long passages about offerings and sacrifices, especially in Leviticus. In chapter 7, it says, These then are the regulation for the burnt offering, the grain offering, the sin offering, the guilt offering, the ordination offering, and the fellowship offering. And the passages and offerings are incredibly detailed, elaborate, and complex, and frankly, for many, a little boring. Uh, They're not at all simple and straightforward like our own tax code here in the United States. That was a little tax humor. (laughs) And one of the offerings was the wave offering. Now, anybody... Want to guess what they did with the wave offering? Yeah, they would literally wave it, pick it up, wave it before God, just the way of saying, God, I know you've blessed me. Uh, This isn't really mine, God. This is a tool of yours, a way of being joyful. So I think just for the fun of it, we're going to do that. Pull out your wallet, guys, or a checkbook or a purse or or credit card, anything that has money to do it, and we're not leaving until I see them. Okay? If you have it along with you, pull, I want to see it. Hold it up when you got it. Don't start waving yet. We're going to wave together, okay? All right, you got it? Now, I want you to stand up because we're really going to wave. We're going to be, we're going to be charismatic here, okay? All right, start waving it to the Lord. Lord, all right? Wave it. God, thank you for this gift. Thank you for the generosity. We know this is yours. We know we're just managers that you've given us. And Lord, I'm not going to abuse this credit card anymore. You know, thank you, Lord, for giving it to me. Now, give it to the person next to you, and we're going to take the offering right now. (laughs) You may be seated. Thank you. Now, here's a weird idea. I read about this guy who was going to he came and gave a large gift to a nonprofit organization. And he was pretty well off. And he told the nonprofit executive, do you know, or he asked him, do you know why I'm giving this? The executive said, oh, I don't know. The man says, I want to buy a nice car, a really nice car. And I asked my wife if it was okay if I buy this new car. And she thought about it and she said, well, I'm okay with it if you make a matching contribution to my favorite charity. So that's why I'm doing this, so I can get a new car. So I don't know what a really nice car costs, you know, $80,000. So he gave 80000 to God as well. Isn't that crazy? What would happen if we all put 100% self-imposed tax on luxury items, items we don't need? We could still buy them, but then we'd also give the same amount to God's work. That would make money more of a tool and not a drug. New carpet. Oh, I'd like to have new carpet. I don't really need it, but I'd like to. Whatever it costs, give the same amount to God as a wave offering, kind of a luxury tax on yourself. What would happen if we did that? I think two things would happen. First of all, we might decide, I don't really need that luxury item. I could do with less, and that would not be all bad. Or sometimes we might decide, I'm going to go ahead with a purchase, but then I'm going to give the same amount, and I can do an awfully lot of good in, in this world, and it'll be my wave offering to God. You'll think twice about spending. And it'll make you think about giving. So farmers, uh, when you buy a new combine, just give the same amount. We'll pay this building off today. (laughs) Nah, that's probably not a luxury item. 
Maybe luxury for, for you is just eating out at a restaurant. I'll give the same amount to God. God's very interested in making us a generous people. He wants us to be like Him. Now, we've taken a congregational vote. We want to be a generous church, honoring God. Here's one more. Sabbath generosity. Every seventh day, they would voluntarily give up income. They would just not work on the seventh day. Took a day off to trust God and worship. Don't you think you could give God one day out of your schedule? One day. And then every seventh year was to be a Sabbath year, and they would rest the land, and they would free slaves, and they would forgive all debts every seventh year. Amazing generosity. Forgive debts, free slaves. And then after seven Sabbath years, after 49 years, seven Sabbath years, every 50th year was a year of jubilee. Not only would they free the slaves and forget the debts, all the land would go back to the original owners, and the year of jubilee was a year of incredible generosity. And kindness. And when Jesus began his ministry in Luke 4, he came and proclaimed, This is the year of Jubilee, the year of God's generosity to us. He's the biggest giver in the universe, and he's giving his best gift, his own son. Hallelujah, Jubilee. So, what's the point of all this? Are you saying, Weber, 20% and then 30% a third year, plus first fruits, plus harvest generosity, plus offerings, plus these others? Seriously? No. Because part of that was their welfare program. And we have our government, and I assume most of you pay a lot of taxes. So that does change things. But at the very least, 10% went to maintain the local work of God. So God's people today, it seems to me, should give 10% to His work and then offerings to other works. And the main point is God wants you and me to be generous and put Him first. And the, the amounts will differ for different people. For some people, $100 a week is not generous. That's leftovers. For others, $50 a week is a lot. I'm just saying, don't do the last fruits thing. Because uh, when you do that, you're basically saying, God, you're the leftovers of my life. And do not expect any blessing. First fruits looks forward to God will bless me in the future. It's an act of faith. Harvest generosity looks backwards to how God did bless me in the past. And giving joyously looks forward and it looks backward because God's been good. Here's the prayer that children's worship has this morning. This will be our prayer this morning. Dear God, thank you for all you've given us. Help us to give generously and use our gifts to further your kingdom here on earth. In Jesus' name, amen. And I hope our children learn generosity at a young age. It's a lot easier to learn it. I am so thankful that my mom and dad told me, taught me about tithing when I was seven years old. And your, parent, your kids will thank you for teaching them and showing them what God's desire is for their finances.